The next thing I want to do is uh, maybe you could call it liturgy. I don't know, but I want to take you through a couple different um, a couple different things. One of them we actually used with the kids, and if you if you popped in early, um, then you you already kind of saw this or heard heard us talking about this. But I showed this to the kids, and um, I I wanted to show it to you all as well. This is something that I think about a lot. Um, during the spring and um, it kind of came up in some of my content and um, I thought it might be a good time and part of the reason that it comes to mind is um, Mother's Day really reminds me of this <clears throat> for some reason now you'll notice that this is written from the perspective of a father um, but I think this is equally true if not more true for mothers who have experienced what this exact thing is about um, for generations upon generations. Um, there are some fathers who this also pertains to as well, but the point kind of remains the same. The other reason this comes to mind is this is actually taken from a graduation speech given by Bill Watterson. And if you don't know who Bill Watterson is, uh, he is the creator of Calvin and Hobbes, the, the comic book strip. And uh, if you don't know his story, um, I'd encourage you to, to, to look it up. It, it's, a, it's a fascinating example of what I think being an artist and a creator um, and an influencer should look like. Um, if <clears throat> I have more details that I've written about. I wrote an article called, What Kind of Creator Are You? Uh, Calvin and Hobbes versus Gar Garfield. Um, and that gives some more details if you're, if you're wanting to know more of the backstory, but basically uh, Bill Watterson was a mammoth comic book creator and kind of created the whole identity of comic books and then just disappeared. He never got royalties for anything that sold with Calvin and Hobbes. Um, nobody knows what he went on to do or why he stopped. He just said, it's time to be done. Um, and so he gave a graduation speech where he, he, kind of gave his perspective on life and work. And somebody took that and made it into a strip that's kind of done in, in the manner of Calvin and Hobbes. So I wanted to read this. There's a good chance that I will, uh, I will have to pause and like collect myself. Uh, this happens every time that I read this. Um, but again, hopefully this is beneficial to you. And, and this starts moving us into what we're going to talk about today. So I'll read this and um, I'll also kind of let the images sit for a little bit. Creating a life that reflects your values and satisfies your soul is a rare achievement. In a culture that relentlessly promotes avarice and excess as the good life, a person happy doing his own work is usually considered an eccentric, if not a subversive. Ambition is only understood if it's to rise to the top of some imaginary ladder of success. Someone who takes an undemanding job because it affords him the time to pursue other interests and activities is considered a flake. A person who abandons a career in order to stay home and raise children 
is considered not to be living up to his potential. As if a job title and salary are the sole measure of human worth. You'll be told in a hundred ways, some subtle and some not, to keep climbing and never be satisfied with where you are, who you are, and what you're doing. There are a million ways to sell yourself out. And I guarantee you'll hear about them. To invent your own life's meaning is not easy, but it's still allowed. And I think you'll be happier for the trouble. I want to invite you all to uh, join in this prayer if you would like. This is called the Wesleyan Covenant Prayer and was one of the staples of John Wesley's contribution to the life of liturgy. And it's beautiful and it articulates the journey and the invitation of, of faith in a very tactile way. And so I'm gonna read this, feel free to follow along if you'd like, or just reflect on the words. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will, rank me with whom you will, put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours. So be it. And the covenant now made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. So hopefully at least one of those forms impacted you somehow. And uh, I don't show the Bill Watterson thing to try to make anybody who has a job feel guilty um, because I think all of us in our different ways find opportunities to create meaning that are a bit subversive to our culture. And I hope you find that compelling to keep doing those things and to pair that with Wesley's prayer. Uh, I, I love where it gets to the point where it says, so be it, whatever this involves, whatever this has to look like, if I am true to this identity, so be it. I'll embrace that. And I think that's our invitation today. So I'd like to share a song now uh, from our good friend and colleague, Noah Martis. But this is a song that Noah wrote called Kentucky. And this song is about conflict. And specifically, it's about relational conflict, but hopefully you'll see the tension that comes with conflict and that, that tension applies to the vast array of conflicts that we find ourselves in. So I hope you enjoy this. I will have the lyrics up on the screen so you can follow along and uh, be able to parse out how this song uh, narrates and moves. 
Let's listen to this together. against the chest Forgotten every lie she told me Only remember when she left When you
right. Some of you asked for specific content today, and uh, I didn't want to to give you specific the specific content you requested, which was mostly uh, y'all wanted to talk about the Book of Revelations, and uh, I I don't want to do that. Um, so we're going to talk about something. Um, we're going to talk about something else. Um, <laughs> just catching up on the chat. And, and Tracy, you can feel free to unmute your mic and sing. I think it would be entertaining for all of us. So as we go through this, um, this is kind of a follow-up on what we talked about a couple weeks ago with resurrection and doubt. And uh, part of this comes from, I, I had been assigned to write on, on this topic and was able to use some of the conversation that we had, but some questions came up uh, as we went that I, I kind of wish we would have had more time to, to dive into. So um, I do have an article under the same title, The Invitation of Conflict. And if you want to know more details about like how this works and what's going on, um, more from the practical standpoint, I would encourage you to, to read that. Um, we're not going to be able to get into all of the details that were written about, but as, as I was writing that, I thought this, this would be a good way to continue uh, in the season that we are in. And I really think that the story of Jacob captures, captures that well. So there's the story of this character named Jacob in the book of Genesis. And it's one, of, it's one of my favorites, though I think I say that about all of the stories we talk about. It's one of my favorites, and uh, I think there's something in here that can speak, speak to us just in living life. And it has to deal with conflict. And the, the first thing I'll say about conflict, and, and I know some of you um, read that article already, and, and so some of this might be uh, repetitive. But conflict is not good or bad in and of itself. Conflict is very natural. In fact, it's unavoidable. It's inescapable and it is inevitable to being a human being. What we do with conflict is important. And so I want to look at this through the lens of, of Jacob's story. Uh, so as we go, if you have a way to write down questions or thoughts, please do that. Um, so that way, when we get to the end and um, I say, does anybody have any questions or thoughts? You know, you'll have some and we won't have to just sit here and stare at each other in silence. Unless you're into that kind of thing. Um, so do that or feel free to use the chat, uh, the chat option. Um, I'll try to keep an eye on that as we go, but I can go back and look at that once we, once we get to that point um, in, in our time this morning. So let's just start with Genesis 32. And if you have your own text and you want to follow along with that, absolutely. But um, I, I have it here on the screen as well. So this is Genesis 32. This is, this is towards the end of the chapter. And we're going to cover some other details that happened before. But I want to focus on this, on this narrative. And here's the thing about this narrative. I'm guessing you all have heard this before. I'm guessing this has been brought up. Um, 
you've seen imagery of it, you've heard sermons on it, etc. And so I am going to kind of ask, like, try to hear this fresh. Okay, try to pay attention to this as if you've never heard it before. Um, and let's ask some questions about what's going on here, because I think this is a really profound story that, that exemplifies why the Hebrew scriptures are, are so powerful even today. All right. So I'll read through this and then uh, I got some questions that we can ask and we'll keep moving. The same night he got up and took his two wives, his two maids and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and likewise everything that he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask me my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the place is called, therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the thigh muscle that is on the hip socket. This is a, a different kind of interesting detail because he struck Jacob on the hip socket at the thigh muscle. All right, so that's the story. Okay, there's a lot of details going on. The ending part of the story kind of gives us some in, implications of what happens later and becomes a big part of Israel's tradition. But I want to focus on what's going on throughout the story itself. <clears throat> now, this is a blessing narrative, okay? And specifically a blessing narrative that deals with the covenant. And this happens several times uh, throughout Israel's history. Uh, God creates this covenant with humankind, and there are instances where an individual is called into that covenant and is responsible for carrying it out. This is the one that happens with Jacob. The one that happens with Jacob is different than almost every single other instance that we have. So let's talk about a couple of the details happening here. Uh, the first thing is what happens in this narrative. Okay, and there's two important things. First is the blessing of the covenant is passed on, okay, that, that occurs. The second interesting thing is Jacob's name changes. And I think we need to pair those two things together to understand the implication of what's happening. So some important details to pay attention to is first, uh, who does Jacob wrestle? If you have a text in front of you or you're looking at the text on the screen and you had to answer that question, I'd, I'd be really interested to see how you answer it because there's some problems with whatever answer you get, right? So you could make a case that uh, if you look right here, I kind of got my cursor going over the text. I don't know if you all can see that well. 
uh, Jacob was left alone. So Jacob's alone. So who does he wrestle? Well, you could say himself. He's, he's the person that he's wrestling with. And that's a really interesting picture to think of, that all of this is actually Jacob with himself. Okay? Or uh, if you go right to the next, the next few words, a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And there's been a lot of speculation on like, who is this man? What is this man? Is this some sort of like divine kind of being? Is this some bystander that was interacting with the scene? Is this a representative of God? Um, Who is this? So Jacob could be wrestling with himself. Jacob could be wrestling with this this being. Um, Or if you go down further to the bottom, in this line, then the man said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. So it's Jacob wrestling God. And that's usually the interpretation that you hear. If you've heard somebody talk about this, they've, that's probably what they've assumed. But it is more complicated than that. Um, and so who is Jacob wrestling? That's, that's a question to pay attention to. Um, the next question is, why is Jacob alone? Why is he alone here? And in order to answer that, you have to read what happens right before this. So there's a, a section of text that occurs before this wrestling match. And we're kind of given some details about why Jacob is alone. And, and you kind of see it at the beginning. So when we're told that he, take, he takes his two wives, his two maids, and his 11 children, and crossed the, the ford, crossed the river. Uh, he took them and sent them across the stream and everything he had, and Jacob was left alone. And so he sends, first of all, he has two wives. Complicates things. Uh, he, he takes all of his family and all of his possessions. And Jacob is incredibly wealthy at this point. And we have to ask, why is he so wealthy? And that, that'll come up in a minute. He takes everything he has and he sends it across the river and Jacob stays back by himself. Why? And the answer to that is really telling to the character of Jacob. Okay. What we're told right before, well, I'll get to that in a second. Let's keep going. We'll come back to that. Um, The next question is why does Jacob get blessed? Right? So if you think of, uh, the first humans in Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two, a blessing occurs. Uh, you think of Noah, and we looked at that uh, last week, a blessing of the covenant occurs. Uh, you think of Abraham, you think of Isaac, and how those blessings occur. And this one's different. So why does Jacob get blessed? Um, and, it, and the answer is right here. It's right in the text. Then he said, Let me go for the day is breaking. So the person Jacob's wrestling says, let me go for the day is breaking. So Jacob's winning the wrestling match at this point. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He demands the blessing. He's capitalizing on his advantage in the moment and almost manipulating this this person into giving Jacob a blessing. That's not how any of the other ones work. So, so we're sort of given a behind-the-scenes look at Jacob's personality here. Um, and, and if you even think about one of the major blessing moments is Genesis chapter 12, 
where we're told that Abraham is blessed, or Abram at that point is blessed in order to be a blessing. So the, a blessing is not something that's static. It's you receive this and now you have a responsibility of what you're going to do to spread it. Uh, so, so there's kind of a hard work that comes with the idea of blessing. And the image we get here of Jacob is like, he's demanding that he receives this thing because it's going to be to his advantage. Uh, so that's a little bit, it's a little bit different. The next thing to pay attention to is this whole thing with the hip. Like what's going on with Jacob's hip? And again, we, we see this imagery a lot. And I think it's a pretty profound image and it's going to take us to the implications of what's happening here. But why is hip? And why does he get hurt? And you have to understand that that hip area, okay, we'll just say that, the hip area is kind of symbolic for passing on a blessing. And so when a, when a father passes on a blessing to his children, they would grab that hip area, grasp it, and that would be symbolic for the passing on of a blessing. Jacob's hip is put out of joint, and he's forever marked in this area, um, and he limps because of it. And so from here on out, something's happened with Jacob that any blessing he's going to pass on, it's going to be marked with this pain and, and this injury and this limp. Um, and, and so in Jacob's getting blessed, he's, the, the blessing mechanism is also injured. Now, here's an important detail is that no other blessing covenant situation in the text, at least that I know of, involves pain or injury. And so why does this happen with Jacob? It's a good question. Finally, a uh, detail that um, is incredibly profound here is, is this line right here. So he said to him, what is your name? And this might be one of the most profound questions in the Hebrew scriptures. What is your name? And what, what I hope that you're able to recall, this is not the first time Jacob's been asked this. There was a specific situation where Jacob's father, Isaac, was going to pass on the covenantal blessing to his firstborn. Jacob's not the firstborn, technically. Esau is. And so Jacob dresses up um, like Esau, and he has to put on goat hair on, on his arms because Jacob's arms were smooth. But Esau is so hairy that uh, Jacob has to like put goat hair on his arms so that Isaac will think it's him. Um, so it gives you a little picture of what, Isaac, or what uh, Esau looked like. And Isaac asked, what is your name? And Jacob says, my name is Esau. And there's another uh, subtle point to this question is because um, Hebrew names, and I, and I believe Amy talked about this back in February, but names in the ancient world were not just uh, what we call you. Names in the ancient world were actually descriptions of your identity. And so when you ask somebody, what is your name? You're also asking them, like, who are you at your core? Like, what's the essence of your life? And the word Jacob in Hebrew is Yaakov. Yaakov literally means deceiver. Or you could even translate it as liar, manipulator. And so when Jacob says, my name is Jacob, you could also understand that as Jacob saying, 
I am a deceiver. And we know that this is true within the whole section of Jacob's story. So Jacob's born, he's a twin, but he's the second, uh, the second child to come out of the womb. And so technically that would make him the second born. It would not give him access to the inheritance. And the story we're told about Jacob is he grasped the heel of Esau as they're exiting. And so therefore, there's a little bit of uncertainty as who came out first. Um, and so that's where he gets the name, the, the deceiver, uh, the, the trickster, right? And then as the story goes, there's, there's another point in which Esau is famished. And um, in this story... We usually make Esau out to be kind of stupid, um, but he's dying from starvation because he's been out hunting and getting food for the family. He's been doing a good thing. And Jacob has food, but Jacob will only give him the food if Esau will hand over his birthright. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound exactly like what is happening with Jacob in this story of the wrestling match? I'll give you what you want, Esau, if I can trick you into giving, you what, giving me what I want. Then the story continues. From, from that point, Jacob actually goes on the, uh, on the offensive a little bit. He, then you get the story of Jacob stealing the blessing from Esau in his interaction with Isaac. So then, then uh, Jacob officially has the blessing of the covenant. He's going to be the one to carry on uh, the covenant within this genealogy that started back with Abraham. And so uh, once this happens, now Esau's out to kill him. Jacob goes on the run. He, he's traveling through the wilderness. He ends up at a certain place in the middle of nowhere, has this dream, ends up with a, a, a man called Laban or Laban, depending on how you say it. And that whole narrative is all about Jacob and Laban constantly tricking each other to get what they want. And so uh, Jacob falls in love with uh, his daughter, uh, Rachel, but then Laban tricks, tricks him into uh, being with Leah, who, uh, and, and it's done in the same way of how Jacob tricked Isaac, and now Laban's doing that to Jacob. Um, and so then uh, Jacob has to work even longer, but then in the meantime, Jacob's constantly like tricking and manipulating his way to get more resources from Laban and, and servants and herds and flocks, and that's how he builds up his wealth. Jacob's story up until this point has been one of self-preservation and capitalizing on situations and deceiving and manipulation, and that's Jacob's name. And so when, when the person wrestling Jacob says, what is your name? That's a loaded question. Are you the deceiver? Are, are you the trickster? Are you the one who capitalizes on other people? Are you the one who takes advantage of people still? Um, are, you, are you going to still pretend to be Esau because when your father asked, what is your name, you lied? And you took the blessing. And so the, the, the person says, what is your name? Now, right before this, this, this moment where Jacob sends his family and his resources and his flocks and his herds and all the stuff that he's accumulated over the past several years, the reason that he sends them ahead 
is because Esau is ahead of him. Now, the last time that Jacob and Esau saw each other was when Jacob stole the blessing. And so uh, Jacob finds out that Esau is out there, and he is pretty confident that Esau is going to try to kill him. And what does Jacob do? He sends his family and his servants and everything he has ahead to meet Esau, and he stays behind where it's safe. Jacob is still doing the thing that Jacob has already done. And what's profound about that picture is he's willing to get his family killed for his own self-preservation. That's how he ends up in this wrestling match. And, and so he, he has his servants go and, and try to bribe Esau, give him a bunch of stuff. So hopefully, um, hopefully they won't, uh, he, you know, won't try to kill anybody. Um, and then Jacob stays behind to escape death. And then he sends more gifts to try to appease Esau. It's Jacob being Jacob the whole time. And then that puts him in this situation where uh, he, he capitalizes on the moment to get the blessing and his hip gets hurt and he's asked what his name is. Now, I want to I wanna move back a little bit to Genesis chapter 28. Um, I don't have this on the screen, but if you want to flip to it, you're welcome to. And this is the moment where Jacob's running from his life, from Esau, and he ends up in a certain place. And that's important because, uh, you know, if we're, if we're telling a story about our, our traveling and, and we said, you know, I left Toledo and I went to um, Fayette and I stopped in the middle and I, uh, I stopped in Metamore or whatever. Okay. Just we would, we would say where we are. The author in Genesis 28 says, and Jacob arrived at a certain place like intentionally trying to clue us in. This is in the middle of nowhere. And that's important because Jacob's about to have a dream. And these kind of dreams usually happened in temples. You would go to the temple and you'd spend the night and you'd be sort of induced into this dream state. And whatever dream you had would have been a message from the gods. Jacob's in the middle of nowhere. All he has for a pillow is a rock. Okay, so just like that's how desolate the situation is. But he has this fantastical dream. And in the dream, we're told that there's these angels, these messengers of God, and they're ascending and descending these stairs. Um, and if you have the Jacob's Ladder song stuck in your head, that's fine. Technically, the Hebrew says stairs, not ladders. It kind of messes with the, the rhythm of the song, I guess. Um, but by the way, what's really amazing about that is we're told that these, these divine beings are ascending and then descending. And there's rabbis who talk about how the divine presence is actually on earth and it goes up and down, but it starts here, like in this place. Interesting detail. But in this dream, um, essentially, Adonai communicates with Jacob and says, you have this blessing, you have this responsibility Israel, the, this nation that we're, we're creating to reverse the chaos of the world is going to happen through you, and therefore, I will protect you. And, and uh, Jacob's communicated very specific things that God will make sure happens, and, and, and God says, I will protect you to make sure this happens. Now, here's something that I find really interesting. This is kind of an aside, but Esau was supposed to have the blessing, right? Esau's firstborn. And the character that we see through Esau is really noble. 
like Esau sometimes made out to be a bad guy. Esau looks like the one who's embodying the, the spirit of Abraham more than anybody else. Well, why do we make Esau into the bad guy? And as you read the story, you're going like, oh, the blessing should have gone to Esau. He would have done so much better than Jacob. Jacob's kind of, you know, kind of messed up. And yet Jacob gets the blessing and he gets it, you know, you might even say he gets it illegally. He steals it. He deceives his way into it. He manipulates his way into it. And I find it powerful to, to look at the story and go, God recognizes that. And God recognizes that how Jacob came about this was not okay. And yet God works with the human decisions and says, okay, Jacob, you stole this. Now you better do this right. And I will make sure that my covenant continues and I'm not going to let you get in the way of it. That's kind of what happens with this, with this, with this dream. And so let's go back to this text here on the screen, Genesis 32. How does this fit into that holistic story of Jacob's life? And my question is, is God actually protecting Jacob here? Is God actually protecting the covenant here? Because if Jacob keeps doing what Jacob does, if Jacob, if Jacob continues to be Jacob, this thing's not going to work because that's not how the blessing works. And so somehow Jacob needs disrupted. Somehow Jacob's pattern of living needs interrupted. His identity needs changed. And how does that happen? Through this wrestling match in which Jacob is now forever marked with a limp. There's a conflict in which Jacob is forever changed from it in a way where he can't be the same. And that blessing mechanism, his hip, is marked forever from here on out. And it deals with a situation that might be the most cumulative experience of Jacob being terrible. Like he just willingly sacrificed his family so that he could stay alive and escape death. And it's at this moment where God enters the story and says, are you still going to be Jacob or are you ready to be different? So, so his hip gets impacted and then Jacob demands the blessing and says, I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And, and it's almost like the, the divine word is here speaking. Are you still going to be Jacob or are you ready to be somebody different? And then God blesses him and changes his name to Israel. And I want you to compare what we just saw with the first part of Jacob's story, I want to take you to uh, what happens right after this. Because then now Jacob is going to interact with Esau. And notice the difference. Now Jacob looked up and saw Esau. So this is after the wrestling thing. Saw Esau coming and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two maids. He put the maids with their children in front, then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on ahead of them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. So the first time he approaches Esau, he sends all of them ahead and then stays back. This time, he's, he, he divides them all up and then Jacob goes first. Do you, do you see how Jacob's different now? Right? Or look at, look at this part of it. But Esau ran to meet him 
and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him. Again, like Esau, Esau's the better brother. <laughs> he's, doing, he's doing things right. And they wept. When Esau looked up and saw the woman and the children, he said, who are these with you? That's essentially Esau saying, I haven't seen you for years. Look at all you have. Look at your family. Who are these people? And up until now, Jacob has deceived, manipulated, capitalized, taken advantage to get all of these things. And notice how Jacob responds here. Jacob said, the children to whom God has graciously given your servant. His disposition is different. Then the maids drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And finally, Joseph and Rachel drew near and they bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor with my Lord. And so now Jacob's not giving gifts to Esau um, to, to try to escape death. He's, he's saying, I, I owe you. I, I want to bless you. I, I want to find favor with you. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. And notice what Jacob says here. And this is where I think we get the first mark where Jacob, Jacob's matured somehow. He says, no, please, if I find favor with you, then accept my present from my hand. For truly to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Jacob changes. And I think where we can look at this story is Jacob changes in the face of conflict. Um, so a couple words on conflict. And, and again, um, I, would, I would encourage you to go and read the article because I explain it all in more depth and I explain the process much better than I can here in a couple minutes. But a, a couple important notes. First, we have to understand that conflict in itself is neither good or bad, okay? Conflict is inevitable. Conflict happens. Uh, and just by being a human being who's in relationship with other beings and other things, you're going to rub up against them, and that creates conflict. So the basic definition of conflict should just be, um, and the Latin actually means conflict, just means striking together. And it's just the, the basic description of when two things come up against each other, there's this friction, there's this rubbing, it strikes together, and that's conflict. That's not good or bad, it's just what it is. What this means then is not only is it inevitable, it also has no moral value. The important thing of conflict then is what do you do with it? When conflict inevitably happens, how do you respond to it? Because it's going to. And, and yes, conflict can involve pain and suffering and hurt and shame and guilt and, and sadness and uncertainty and confusion and doubt and questions and lots of, lots of anxiety in our bones. But it still has an opportunity. And, and one of the examples that I give in the article is uh, like when, when, and I think I brought this up a couple weeks ago, when Vanessa and I have conflicts, right? My, my spouse and I, I kind of get excited. And it's not because those things are good. And it's not because I'm happy. It, there usually is a lot of pain in those situations and a lot of tears. But there's this hope of like how we respond can make things better. How we respond is the important way for how we address conflict. And, and, and here's the deal. Something I want to bring up is um, I don't want to diminish people's suffering. Suffering's not good, right? And those kind of conflict, it, that's not a good thing. It's not a good experience. Um, but it doesn't erase the opportunity 
And uh, this is especially concerning when you talk about social injustices, like large scale issues that people experience. And I have not had to face many of those myself. Um, but I think of a man, um, Viktor Frankl, who wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning of his experience in a Nazi concentration camp. And he talks about how like, there's very little that him and his fellow Jews could control. What they could control is how they found meaning and therefore happiness in the midst of terrible suffering and injustice. And so uh, I don't want to diminish people's suffering, but the reality of conflict is for most of us, this occurs in the daily ordinary experiences of being human. So um, I want to show you this picture because in the midst of it, there's, there's three main ways that we respond that sort of exist on a spectrum. And the first um, over here would be ignorance. And so this is conflict happens, it's inevitable, but we pretend like it doesn't, we ignore it. Um, and we just try to go on living with this sort of naive optimism, like, oh no, everything's fine, everything's good. And nothing's gonna happen with that. That will often lead to negative interactions with conflict. The, on the other end of the spectrum is apathy. And this is one that goes, I see the conflict, I acknowledge it, I see what's going on here, and I don't care. I, there, there's nothing good that can come from this, I'm done. I'm gonna check out, go home, um, we're just going to leave this be. And I think the reason that we give negative connotation to conflict is that's typically how we respond, one of those two ways. And so usually the results are negative. And uh, really there's this space in the middle that's when you have conflict, can you go, what's the opportunity here? How do I deal with the pain and deal with the uncertainty and deal with the issues but approach this in a way where this can create growth and transformation. And I think you can see this in the story of, of Jacob, uh, because if we use imagination in the midst of conflict, we're, we're able to see alternatives and then make intentional constructive changes that improve the situation. Conflict causes that to be a part of the conversation, but then we have to decide what are we going to do with it so that things actually change for the better, like conflict can be used to our advantage. And you think about it like facing a mountain, you can face the mountain and you can go, I'm gonna pretend like that mountain doesn't exist. Well, that, that's not gonna work. You're just gonna end up staying exactly where you are and, and you're never going to have the experience that could force you to change based on that mountain. Or you could look at the mountain and go, that mountain looks really difficult, whatever, I'm just gonna stay here. That's ignorance and apathy. Or you can look at the mountain and go, instead of trying to eliminate this mountain, I'm going to utilize it. And the reality is that that mountain exists and right behind that mountain's another mountain, behind that mountain's another mountain. And so we better get used to climbing mountains and adapting to that terrain because that's the terrain we live on. That's going to be the normal experience of life. And so when it comes to conflict, I hope what we can see here is conflict is the invitation to never be the same. Whatever conflict we are in, and in certain conflicts, there's, we have a lot of control. Jacob has a lot of control over his circumstances. There's gonna be conflicts where you don't have a lot of control over your circumstances. But whatever that conflict is, it's an opportunity to never be the same. 
and we see this right now in our coronavirus pandemic situation. Opportunity to never be the same. Opportunity to ask questions that we wouldn't have asked before. Opportunity to see the world in a way that we might not have seen it before. Um, and we see this in, in our daily life all the time, like working in the world of pastoral care. I can't tell you how many people come and they go basically say, I have this conflict. And the question is, okay, what are you going to do with it? How will you be different because of this? And that will either be negative difference or positive. When you experience conflict, you will not be the same. And how you respond will determine whether that will build a better world or a worse one. And we have to make those choices. Um, we talked about this with judgment back before Easter. And um, judgment, and again, if you didn't listen to that, so you don't know what I'm, how I'm using the word judgment, go back and listen to that before you assume anything here. Judgment is being cut open with a knife. What will we find when that happens? I would say the same is true about conflict. Conflict is the world cutting you open with a knife and it hurts. But when that happens, what will we find in there? That's the invitation of conflict. Jacob uses that in a way to confront his past because here's the deal. Here's the deal with your past. You might be done with your past, but your past is not done with you. And Jacob confronts that and he, he takes the opportunity of the invitation to be different, and he is. In a lot of ways, we are like Jacob. And how do we need to be confronted? How, how do we need to be exposed in the world to go, maybe this could be better? Conflict offers us that opportunity, and that's our invitation. So um, at this point, if you have any questions or thoughts. We will do that now. Um, and I'd be interested in seeing what you all, what you all have to, what you all have to say. Um, I do see a comment that looks like it happened early and um, maybe I did answer this, but are we supposed to believe that the man doesn't know Jacob's name? Hopefully I answered that in saying that uh, the point's not necessarily like, hey, I don't know what your name is, but um, are you still that Jacob? Are you still that person? Um, how are you going to answer this? Are you going to say you're Esau? Are you going to still be a deceiver? Or are you going to be somebody different, right? I think the question, what is your name, is, is you know, kind of saying, how are you going to respond to this, Jacob? How are you going to be different now? Because this can't keep going like it's going. It ain't working. So thank you for that question. Um, yeah, what else? Uh, anybody have any any thoughts? Any questions? We can go back to something that I that I had said um, or brought up. What do y'all have? And feel free to use the chat thing down there, or maybe it's down there. I don't know where it is on your computer. Um, if you if you want to do something that way, you can also chat just to me if you want to stay anonymous. That's an option. Just just select uh, privately to me, and um, I'll get that. It's it's interesting seeing uh, some of you 
like I, I think you're on your phones and I can just like see your ceiling or your wall because you're just like listening with your phone. That's, that's funny. I, I, that's not a bad thing. I'm not criticizing you. I'm just, it's fun looking at all of the, the different setups people have going. So. Hey, it's Mike. Yes. Okay. First, thank you. All right. Um, the, um, the difficulty, the difficulty is where to start. Yeah. And, and the, the, diff, the difficulty it, it is Jacob is so self-absorbed, it's hard to know what's Jacob and what's not Jacob. Is the person he is the per, like you mentioned, is the person he's wrestling himself. Okay. Yep. Uh, and um, I don't want to. I the temptation is to, to get into the questions about okay, did Jacob actually wrestle with God? Doesn't make any difference. He thought he did. That's what he took away from it. Okay, yeah. he took he took he took away he took away the name God fights. Yeah, and that, and that's uh, the the actual name Israel, and I think that's what you're referring to, right, Mike? Is okay. is to to wrestle with God, to fight with God, to uh, I'm trying to think of a less violent metaphor but um it's it's you have a aggressive encounter with the divine that israel that's what that means but it is interesting to consider you know and, and i think we can find this in our own lives where we go we had this moment of deep internal conflict where almost like a jekyll and hyde kind of thing where we see something and yet we're not doing it and and those two things clash within us and it's the natural space to go is like that was transcendent like i saw i saw god in the midst of that um and but that whole question of who does he wrestle that's that's an important question to ask because we wrestle too and oftentimes we're alone wrestling and yet it's like there's somebody else wrestling with us and we don't quite know who that is and it might be ourselves and it's almost like the divine is in there wrestling with us as well, you know? So I think that's a, that's a really, and there, there's some, some important incarnation theology there too. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I added to what you were saying or if. Oh, it, 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 you basically, I think you helped make the point that, that one can one cannot come to observe Jacob's struggle without struggling oneself. Yep. It, yeah. There, because there's so much going on there, mm -hmm. you know, and, and and amongst the things that um, 
that probably Jacob needed was he needed to confront himself. Yeah. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about how he uses the word stupidity, and, and, and I understand why he used that in Nazi Germany context. But he talks about, like, how does somebody change? And uh, especially when they, when they think they know, right, this, this idea that's called amethia, like an informed, intelligent stupidity. They think they know. Yeah. How, do you, how do you actually change somebody? And they have to change internally. And the only way for them to change internally, because they're stuck in ignorance, is something external has to prompt that. Right. And that's what we see with, with Jacob, is Jacob has to reconfigure, rewire this whole thing. And it takes this interaction and this heated moment with Esau for him to go, okay, I do see something now. Um, let, let's get into some of the questions coming up on chat. So um, Amy said, what truth did Jacob need to see? That seems like the point of the story maybe. And I think the important thing to place there is like for Adonai, the covenant is on the line here. Like if Jacob keeps screwing things up like this, that's not going to be the Israel that was supposed to be started back, you know, with creation and with Noah and with Abram. So I, th I think, I think the important thing is like Jacob has to see that he is the representative now of this nation of who they're becoming. And it can't work like this. And, and while we don't maybe have that kind of level of, confrontation on us I, I still think it's relatively true um so i don't know if that answers your question amy but um there's there's some more questions coming in so um i wanted to i read this from tracy said my oldest mid, son's middle name is jacob <sighs> well done there hopefully that is accurate or inaccurate hopefully it's inaccurate based on the hebrew at least um, so the thought entered my mind, if names were so important, did his mother kind of solidify that trickster identity by giving him the name? Jacob's not named until after he comes out of the womb, grasping Esau's heel. My, my understanding, Tracy, is that Jacob is named um, as a result of his deception in being born. That even, even from that moment, he's trying to deceive and manipulate and get his way. So they named him Jacob. Um, but I don't, I don't know, you know, we could think about like, does that solidify his identity? Um, or in the ancient world, names changed a lot. When, you, when your identity changed, your name would change. And that's why we see a lot of name changing in the Bible. Um, does, would his name have changed earlier if he would have stopped living into that identity? Um, so that's something to think about. Uh, Chantel said, I think it's important to remember that when we have conflict with others, often we are not what others are wrestling with. Here, Chantel, Chantel I don't know if you can, I can't see you, but here, just take the microphone and start, you're doing the next sermon. Like that's, that's it. <laughs> I mean, that's, that is, so, so a lot of this so far has been for your conflict, right? What you just brought up is like, if you're naturally going to be in conflict with others, you might want to keep up, keep in mind what's going on with their background entering into this conflict. Gene, did you want to say something, Chantel? 
No, I, this is just a life of learning, like lesson learning, because I don't have a personality that always bodes well with other people. I've noticed that I'm either, either loved or hated. And I, and it's really broken my heart. Like I, because I have this desire to, um, just to have great relationships with a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And what I, what has ended up at like age 48 is that I have great relationships with a handful of people, which is probably most people's reality. But I think because of um, the type of personality I have, and I've learned to like really understand my faults because of it, um, that sometimes like professionally, especially um, there, I end up being like speaking a truth about a situation that ends up falling on the ears of someone who's struggling with taking things personally. And that, that personal struggle ends up getting attached to me. And then I realize later, because some people have been kind enough to say um, what we were struggling there was something that I needed to struggle with God about, but you ended up presenting it to me. And so it fell on you as um, you being the villain, you know, and I'm not perfect. I am the villain or have been the villain, of course. But, um, you know, at other times it just has ended up being that I have to remember inside of the situation that, you know, conflict causes me and others to struggle with something that may not have anything to do with them. They were just a messenger. Yeah. So think of what Jacob says in uh, Genesis 33, where he says, looking at your face is like looking upon the face of God. <laughs> that's so, and that's not necessarily like because it's glorious and it's because I've seen something divine because of this, right? Mm-hmm. You know, I think of there's a Stoic idea uh, in the philosophy of Stoicism that's like in conflict, only, only focus on what you can control. And there is junk going on with other people, not your job, not your responsibility. Um, but at the same time, Sometimes a person dealing with their own junk can say something to you or interact with you in a way where it actually helps you open your eyes a little bit and go, oh, yeah, I didn't see that. And, and there's still that opportunity for you to, to act. We can't ever go, I need to fix this other person, even if they're harming me. And that's where like, okay, boundaries, that, that's going to be done. But, you know, I can't tell you how many times. So, like, I have conflict with a lot of people. Um, I tend to have a personality that's uh, what you said. Like, some people love me. Most don't. And <laughs> I'm, I'm off-putting to a lot of people. And, and that's been a confrontation for me. But how many people have ha- I had conflict with where I'm able to go, like, yeah, this is, you're dealing with some stuff and I get that. And you, and you just lashed out and I'm not going to take that to heart. And yet you helped uncover something in me that I needed to process too. Mm-hmm. You know, so we got to be able to, to go to separate what's their junk and what's our junk. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in relationships of trust and accountability. Yeah, absolutely. There's this line that says, um, have the kind of friends that will tell you the truth before your enemies do. Right. And mm-hmm. can you, do you have people in your life with that kind of loyalty, that kind of love and affection who, who can tell you the hard things and can you hear the hard things? Mm-hmm. Um, 
but yeah, you can't take every conflict, especially on social media, as some sort of attack against you because you're wrong. Some people just got stuff they're dealing with. Um, mm -hmm. But we also need to keep having our eyes open because mm -hmm. it, it's really easy to blind ourselves in self-defense and, mm -hmm. and to cover and go like, nope, I'm not listening to anything you say. Sticks and stones will, I don't even know the line. Uh, <laughs> you all know. Um, and, and it's like, no, some, sometimes somebody throws a stone at you and they're wrong for doing that. And the stone's not the point, but it helps you go, oh, wait, I never thought about that before. But you have to mm -hmm. go through that process. Um, okay, so Trisha uh, wrote an essay here um, in the chat that <laughs> I'm going to... So the first thing of saying, like, always start to avoid conflict. And I'm guessing that a lot of you were taught the same thing, avoid conflict. And some of us are, you know, what Chantel, you're kind of even saying, like, there's that people-pleasing technique, which is, how do I avoid conflict here? And sometimes that's really helpful. Sometimes it keeps us from facing the mountain in front of us. Um, so maybe I, don't, I, I, maybe I don't want to respond because of fear of how family and others may see the honest me, not Trisha, but another name. I want to change this and it's scary. I'm spending a lot of my extra time that I now have to wrestle with myself, my past and the future for myself and all of creation. I have a, a lot of big feelings about this. Um, and then uh, some, some, some affirmation about what Chantel said. Yeah, so we've talked about this before about living in a fiction. And um, is anybody familiar with Immanuel Kant? Was a sort of ethical philosopher. Um, he has a, uh, his theory, his philosoph philosophical theory is that you should never lie. Because lying about anything treats that person as an object because you're stealing reality from them. And we should treat each other as fellow subjects. And so, um, you know, you get, you get pulled over and uh i i don't know if this metaphor works but this analogy but and, and you say like oh no i was only going this or i was doing this other thing to try to get out of it well you just stole information from that person that now does not allow them to fully interact with reality and that's a problem right? um but this idea of you living in a fiction um there's a one of the ten commandments that, uh, what is it? Oh, I forget how the, the exact thing is phrased. I should know this, I'm a pastor. Um, <laughs> but the idea is that, can you be so content with yourself that you don't have to hide who you are and you don't have to pursue what everybody else has? And um, the ways we edit our lives and we revise our lives it might help keep things more calm, but it will also keep us from ever interacting with the world as it is. We'll not have to face those mountains. And again, I think it's important to classify what is a relationship of accountability and transparency and love and what might be unhealthy. But for example, in a marriage, if um, in, in, in the article, I, I use this example to, to talk about weak love. 
if I say I love you to my spouse, while we both avoid the things that we think are tough conversations, we will never actually love the, fully the other person. We will only fully love the other person if we are completely honest within that. And we bring up the junk and we deal with it. And, you know, I, I talk a lot about how Vanessa and I, like, we're not perfect. And we have a lot of fights. And they all happen on the couch. And every time we do, we get better because we're honest about it and we handle the conflict. So I think that's part of it. There's a lot of, whoa, a lot of comments here. Let me try to run through these. I definitely relate to all of that, Trisha. So this is Amanda talking. I tend to err on the apathy side of conflict. I remember wanting to work through things as a child, but after so much meeting up with either ignorance or of conflict or the opposition and volatile anger, great sentence there. I'm now figuring out how to default to apathy. Yep, that's normal. Um, and I think, I think we see that in Jacob a little bit. Um, and this is where psychologists talk about there's three ways that you can change. Epiphany, intentional decision-making, or suffering. And often it's suffering that causes us to change. We wait until things get really bad. Um, it's what uh, the recovery movement calls complete desperation. So there's no other choices and now we have to change. And that's what apathy will do. Um, it'll, it'll, it'll allow you to put it off, put it off, put it off until it gets so bad that you have no other choice. So we have to be careful with that. Um, Amy said, I think we conflict with people who have the qualities that we most don't want to see in ourselves. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that's called projection. And you'll see, you'll see this with people. Well, they'll, they'll be complaining about somebody or fighting with somebody. And it's because they're projecting themselves onto that person. And it's their opportunity to hate the thing they actually hate about themselves without saying that they're their own problem. Um, Amy brought up the Enneagram and I wanted to bring that up too. Uh, what, what Chantel, what you were talking about is the, the, the peacemaker Enneagram, which is trying to keep the peace. And if you all have not, um, if you all have not done the Enneagram, I would highly recommend it. And I would love to help you like through that interpretive process, but that is a great way to understand how you deal with conflict and what your tendencies are, like the sort of archetypal personality you have that can inform how you engage with these things, it's really helpful. Um, Vanessa Kleberger said, we fight a lot, question mark. Um, no comments there. Moving on. Um, Chantel said, I think when we enter conflict with the highest value, how, how am I going to learn from this instead of how Am I going to teach this person what they need to learn when they interact? Yes. But how often, like, just look at political conversations on social media. Everybody approaches it with, uh, I need to show this person the truth, you know. They're lacking something that I have. And if everybody could just be like me, <laughs> this would be so easy. Um, instead, what if we approached it like, uh, what do I have to learn here? Uh, what questions do I need to ask? Like, I rarely see somebody on social media 
enter into something that they disagree with by asking questions, right? Uh, by going like, can you explain that to me more? I, I, don't, I don't see it that way. So could you tell me what your thought is? Instead, it's just like, you're an idiot and whatever terrible conversation continues from that. Um, but if you're, if you're familiar with uh, Plato and his cave analogy, we, we looked at this in our social ethics class. And um, the, the cave analogy is basically like all of us sort of live in a cave. We're born into a cave where we don't see the world correctly. And at the mouth of the cave is this fire that gives us light, but we can only see the shadows that it causes. And that becomes our reality. And what we have to do is get out of the cave to actually see reality. Well, to what Chantal's saying is, everybody acts like that person's in the cave and I'm not because I I've seen reality and they haven't. And my take on the cave analogy is like, always assume you're in the cave. Always assume you're the one that's missing information. And that's how we know you're not actually in the cave because the person who's willing to take that approach has seen something that the others haven't. So Oh, that's an interesting way to think about to think about that. Any other thoughts on Jacob or um, conflict in general? Um, and again, you know, I would I would say I, I'm not trying to like just do a bunch of self promotion here. I I took a lot of time to explain conflict in writing, and that's able to do more justice than I am in, in this setting. So I'd, I'd recommend uh, reading that if you're interested in some of this stuff. Um, but especially with Jacob's story, um, you know, one of my questions would be, how, how do you limp? What moments of conflict have you had in your life where you could no longer be the same and you're different now. And we can look at you and we see you walking with, with this limp. You know, I can think of moments in my life that changed me. And, you know, I sort of wear those like scars on my, on my, on my body. And we all have them. It's a wonder that I can still walk upright. <laughs> Most of us don't. Uh, Anne Lamott, any, any Anne Lamott fans? Anne Lamott has uh, uh, a quote where she says, grace is rarely ever a run, and it's not even really a walk. It's a slow scooch across the floor. That's, most of us are just scooching across the floor, and uh, that's, that's about... That's about the most beautiful way to do it. Quinn, uh, your, your thoughts are requested. Anything you want to say, Quinn? No, don't, I don't think he, he does. Say hi. There he is. There you go. Quinn's just embracing all of the conflicts that are come from being a pastor's kid. There's a lot of those. Uh, all right. Um, any, any last thoughts?
Okay. Um, a couple things to keep in mind. Uh, we will probably still be closed for a while. Um, and I'll be honest, I'm exhausted. I'm sick of Zoom. I do not like this. I want to see you all. I want to get back into things. Um, and yet this has caused a conflict for us. And we have started working on some ideas for um, what, how we're going to be different from here on out. And I'm excited about that. And it wouldn't have happened without this conflict. Um, so we'll be on here for, for a while, at least through May. Um, and we'll see how things progress. Um, also, there's, there's some difficult things going on in the community. One I'm not at liberty to, to tell you about, but it deals with a family and an illness that's not coronavirus. And it's not going well. Um, they're at the hospital uh, right now. And um, I, I don't know what's going to happen with that. Um, also, on, on, a, on a good note, uh, Rusty Carr is home and he's recovering and there's uh there's still some issues that he has to work through but um you know continue to show the rusty and the car family your love and support and you know they still need it um so there, there's there's still a lot of suffering going on in the world y'all um so sound yeah really good content today thank you um uh and i, I appreciate that but hopefully this is just the beginning of the conversation. Hopefully this keeps impacting how we're, we're formed as a community. Um, I don't know what next week is going to be. I really am trying to avoid the revelation thing. I don't want to do that one. Uh, it scares me to death and it's overwhelming. So if somebody has something uh, more simple that they want to cover, um, one option is I'm currently working on a perspective on theodicy. I know we talked about that a few weeks ago um, through the book of Lamentations, and it's very fitting for our situation right now. Um, so if anybody's interested in that, let me know, because I'm working on that content for school, and I would love to do a thing on that if you would like that. Um, Lamentations is probably the most neglected book in the Bible because it's, whew, it's rough but I think it's, I think it's amazing. So, all right. It's good to see you all. Thank you all for doing this. And I'm sorry that we, we have to, and I'm, I'm sorry that we can't do it better, but hopefully this has been helpful for y'all. Um, remember the giving options. Um, you know, we're going to find out Julie Zabo is putting together our financials to kind of see how April went. And, uh, um, yeah, you know, it's going to be tough for us just as it's tough for everybody right now. So just keep, keep that all in mind. Um, but grace and peace be with all of you as you go. Go enjoy the, the warmth. Go and, go and put Bill Watterson's comic into action out there today and, uh, and, and find meaning in ordinary life with the people you love. And we will see you all next week.